listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, before we get to today's interview, I want to tell you about an exciting development. Grief Out Loud recently partnered with BetterHelp. Have you heard of them? They provide online counseling and support with licensed counselors via video, phone call, real-time chat, and messaging. When BetterHelp reached out to us to ask if we wanted to partner, we thought, well, we better try it before we recommend it to you. So a few weeks ago, I signed up and got connected to a local counselor. It's been great. You know how when you try to find a counselor, especially in the before times, it took a lot of work? When you do finally connect with someone, you might have had to trek across town or even to a different town, navigating traffic and scheduling. With BetterHelp, I got connected in just a few days. The scheduling was super easy, and the commute just required me to walk across my house to a different room. If you're needing support and counseling, give BetterHelp a try. You can sign up using our specific Grief Out Loud link. It's betterhelp.com forward slash grief, and you'll get 10% off your first month. So once again, it's betterhelp.com forward slash grief. Okay, here's today's interview. Have you ever come across a quote or a social media post encouraging you to choose joy or cultivate gratitude? When you did, what was your reaction? For a lot of people facing grief, the directive to choose joy and focus on what you do have rather than what you've lost can feel dismissive at best. But what if there was more to the concept of purposely making room for joy and gratitude while staying true and present to the pain of loss? What if they didn't have to cancel each other out? That realization played a big role in Ty Alexander's life after her mother died of cancer when Ty was in her 20s. Ty is an author, wellness blogger, podcaster, and grieving daughter. Her book, Things I Wish I Knew Before My Mom Died, chronicles the life she lived with her mother and the life she worked hard to create after her mother died. With chapter titles like We've Been Duped, Everyone Dies, and The Truth About My Moderately Dysfunctional Family, Ty delves into the most painful parts of her grief. She also explores how gratitude and joy became two of her main strategies, first for survival and then for living more fully. Ty and I talk about so many things, including what she learned from her mom about grief, racism, and life, how the practice of choosing joy and gratitude changed her relationship to grief, what happened to the relationship with her father after her mother died, and what the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement are bringing up for her in her grief. Ty, thank you so much for making time to be on Grief Out Loud with me today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. So I just finished re-listening to your book, Things I Wish I Knew Before My Mom Died. And the way you write about your mom, I feel like she was in the room with me. But for our listeners, tell us a little bit about your mom. Like, what kind of mother was she? Oh, my goodness. That's so good to hear because I, I, in writing about my mother, I wanted to make sure that you understood our relationship and you could feel it 
So it definitely makes me feel all giddy inside to know that what I tried to do actually conveyed to readers. Um, but just as I talked, like my mom was a joy. She was smart and witty and sarcastic and just, you know, a giving person kind. Like there are so many adjectives that I could use to talk about my mom. But I think the one that really strikes me the most is that my mom was really kind. Like she did lots of kind things for us and for her other family members and people on the street. Like she was just a really kind person. Is there a particular memory of your mom that's been standing out to you lately? The memory that really stands out to me, the memories rather, are like her last eight to six to eight months of her life. We spent a lot of time having really deep conversations, not only about just, you know, death, obviously, because it was glaring in our face, but just about how she grew up, her relationship with, you know, my grandmother, her mom, her relationship with my father, just, I really got to know her as a woman. And I was grateful to have those memories because I'm not sure, you know, if she was in hospice and we were preparing for her next transition, if I would have gotten that same, you know, opportunity. And in the book, you talk about how the conversations that you were able to have with your mom, there were ones that just the two of you were having, right? That she wasn't speaking that way to the other members of your family. Like what stood out to you about those conversations? So the one thing that I will credit, um, the hospital that she was being cared for at was John Hopkins Hospital in their cancer ward. And there was a grief counselor there. And she recommended that my mom have these very personal conversations with each person of her immediate family. So I got, a, I got conversations, my dad got conversations, and my brother got conversations. And I don't know what their conversations were. The idea was to kind of form this transitional bond with each person of your family. And so the conversations were just so raw and vulnerable, but I also knew that she was just happy, just being able to release all of that to all of her loved ones had to have been a gift, not only again to me, but also to her on her way to the, you know, the next stage of life. Speaking a little bit about, about gifts that, you know, we give and receive within our family, you have a a great podcast called self-care IRL. And in a recent episode, it was entitled, are you ashamed of your black girl name? Me too. You talk about how you shortened your name to Ty in order to seem and sound less black. And as I was listening to it, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, the name is often what comes from our parents, maybe from your mom, maybe from your dad. And as I was listening, I thought, oh, what would your, what do you think your mom would think about that episode and and about that process and sort of your reckoning with your name? The crazy part is, is that no one, literally, no one calls me by my whole name, which is Taisha. No one calls me that. My mother, I, I can count on my fingers how many times she may have said it. And it was usually when I was in trouble. So it would be like, <laughs> Taisha, get down from there. Stop doing this. It was that kind of thing. So even in that vein, it was never a name for me that felt like love. Because even when it was said to me, it was kind of like a don't do this, don't be this kind of thing. And so I've, I've always been Thai. My mom called me Thai, my, like my my cousins and whatever. Like, And even my cousins do call me by my whole name. It's still out of the gist of like, I'm being smart or being petty, you know what I mean? So it never had love behind the name. So, and I, and even before she died as a as a high schooler, I'd always be like, why did you name me? 
you know, this long name with all these vowels that's super black and, you know, why? And she was like, I don't, there's no rhyme or reason. I just made it up. I liked it. And here you are. And then when you came out, you became Thai. So it was, it, my mom never thought too much about it. And I don't think that she would have even have been offended or even thought about, I think now in hindsight, how the world is going and how just aware we are of race and how black women are beginning to speak up. I think she may have been involved in a conversation, but definitely on the, the side of like, you should be proud of your black name, that kind of thing, which is where I'm heading to be. Still don't want you to call me Taisha. <laughs> I'm getting there. <laughs> What you were just saying, Ty, about how, you know, the, the world we're in right now in 2020, the, the context in which we're in, the way we're talking about the pandemic, the way we're talking about race, the way we're talking about grief, it, it's different than when your mom was still here in her physical form, or I should say, the way white culture is talking about the world is starting to shift. And I wonder if you have a sense of like what kinds of conversations you would be having with your mom or what kinds of conversations as you were growing up that your mom shared with you about race and the effects of racism. Um, even when my mom was here, we definitely had those race conversations. And it's obvious when my mother was born in the 50s, 60s, white people weren't involved in race conversations, right? Like we, we as a culture, as black culture, we're definitely having the conversations, how to, you know, move past it, how to move forward, how to, you know, just cope. But as a, as a whole globally, no, we were not talking about it. But my mom would talk very openly about, you know, not trusting white people, not, um, not taking things that they say for face value, you know? And so even growing up, I'd shared on my Instagram not too long ago about I, when, and when I was in middle school, I had two white best friends, Jessica and Jennifer, and I may have been, I don't know, sixth grade, again, middle schoolish, and we would walk home together from school. Their grandparents lived next to my grandparents. And so we became friends, we walk home. And so one day when we were walking home, their younger cousins were it was were in their yard and they called me the n-word like in a get out you know whatever get out and so from that that for me was the moment that i knew i was black and i lived accordingly and i listened to my mother's words accordingly and so it's it's crazy to think that at 43 I am just beginning to have these race conversations with other white women in a way where they're listening and I'm listening because I'm not going to lie as a black person. I was also like, I don't want to, I don't got, I don't care what Karen or Becky or none of them got to say, I'm not listening because I don't trust them, you know? And so even unlearning the thought process of like white people will never understand even me trying to unlearn that and give redemption you know, to people who have, white people who've had this culture and are now trying to fix it or, you know, unlearn on their side as well. And so I think our converse, the conversations with my mom, it's, it's funny because I'm not sure if she would be all gung-ho <laughs> because she's, she was, I mean, like I said, she was kind, but she also wasn't like a kumbaya kind of person. Even in the very brief conversations that we had about her upbringing, 
I know that race was a problem for her. Like she was a part of the, you can't drink from this fountain. She was a part of segregation. You can't go to this school. And so I am positive that that shaped who she was as a woman, as a black woman. I don't ever remember my mom having any friends who weren't black. And so I think from her experience, she really did shape her culture solely around black culture. As I unlearn and try to be more open about humanity, I have since opened up my circle to allow other ideas, thoughts from the other side so that we can begin to heal. It makes me think about when someone dies, we knew them as they were and they knew us as we were in that moment. And then in our lives, as we continue to grow and change, how in our minds we try to stay connected with that person, even though we may be, we might worry or wonder, like, would they recognize me if they were suddenly here right now? And I I wonder what that's been like for you as you explore these different ways of talking with people and, and forming relationships. If you think about like, oh, what would this conversation with my mom be like right now? Like, what would she think of me and what I'm doing? My mother was really the person who introduced me to spirituality and like what that looks like for me. And so we were never the family who went to church on Sundays. Like we really only went on Easter and after a while that kind of stopped. And so my, even my introduction to like Christ and, you know, just the idea of what religion looks like was from the lens of spirituality. So I can only imagine the really wild growth, you know, conversations we would have by now, knowing how much I know about wellness and about spirituality. So it makes me sad just a little bit to think that I didn't have those conversations about my spirituality with her as an adult, because we definitely had them as a kid. Like death for me was never, I think I mentioned this in my book, but death was never like a scary topic to me. It was always known to me that my mother was not going to be here forever. Like she reminded me constantly, like, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. So here's these recipes, here's this, this, and make sure you do like, it was definitely drilled into my head that people, right? Like human beings don't last forever, including your parents. And so I can only imagine what our conversations would be like. Um, And funny enough, if you believe, I, I dream about my mom a lot she shows up in my dreams and we have the best conversations about life and we go shopping together. So I think that that's her kind of inserting herself into my world, you know, even though she's not physically here. There's a story in your, in your book about your pet bird. And I don't know if I have all the details, correct? Pebbles. (laughs) Pebbles. And what stood out to me about that story was how much you were learning from your mom about grief and what grief is supposed to look like. Could you say a little bit more, like, what's your sense of what you learned about grief from your mom? I hear that, you know, she was preparing you, like, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not going to be here forever. And how what she taught you played out, particularly in those like early parts of your grief after she died. I don't even know if she realized like the bird story, like, even even as I look back, it really taught me like life goes on, right? Like people die, things end, 
you know, we mourn, but life does not stop for you. And I think a lot of times when we are grieving or we're in the midst of it, like, especially in the beginning, like we literally just shut down and stop life. So one of the biggest lessons I've learned just, you know, from her not being here or from our early conversations, or even just from the bird that died that I didn't know died. <laughs> um, it really is just that, you know, people will die. I think the biggest dupe of all in our entire lives will be this idea that one humans belong to us right like we this is my mom and she's gonna be here forever that's not how that works at all and so her giving me the the concept the gift of this is the life you will experience it and things will end including lives and so for me that that has been the greatest teaching that she probably could have ever taught me you were a really big part of your mom's care team while she was dealing with cancer. And what was that experience like for you? It was hard to care for my mom, but oh my gosh, it was a privilege. It was a privilege to, I'm not sure if we pay too much attention to the things that happen to our our souls and our psyche once we realize the transition is happening. And I can't quite explain to you the kind of person my mother became once she accepted death as her next state of life, if that makes sense. And so just to witness her vulnerability, to witness her candor, to just, just all of the things as a like just to which witness her actually make that transition the only thing i couldn't do was my father and my brother were there when she actually took her last breath and i had decided not to be a part of that just because i didn't want the me i wanted the memory of her to be of her alive and i think i in hindsight i think i made the best decision but we can talk about guilt later because i definitely felt <laughs> and and unlearned all types of guilty things from actually not being there to hold her hand because that's what society tells you to do, right? Like I knew for my own healing, my own just wellness, like I couldn't do that. But prior to that, just again, having those really candid conversations, like I'm, I'm for certain that I would not be able to talk with my mom with the certainty that I have today if she had not died. And it's the most craziest, bittersweet thing to say but in the last eight months of her life, I learned so much about her. My mother and her mother, my grandmother, didn't have the best relationship. And so growing up, I always didn't know why. I just knew that I picked my mom. And so I'm not going to talk to grandma either. And so as we're unpacking things and just kind of sorting through feelings, I learned the whys, I learned the hows, I learned this is what happened, this is what was said. And it just made everything make more sense. It also gave me the permission to forgive my grandmother, right? Because I had held on to all of this animosity and all this foolishness. And I didn't know why. I was a kid and I just knew we was mad at grandma. <laughs> like we're just we're just gonna be mad at grandma. I don't know why. And so, but in working through that, I was able to say, you know what, people are still humans beyond being my mom, my dad, my grandmother, you know, whatever. And they come with baggage and they come with, you know, unresolved whatevers, and they don't have the resources to fix things. And so I was really able to forgive a lot of things in that process. 
Those are some themes that kind of come through in your writing as well, because you talked about guilt and the other things that came through were the, you know, choosing to pursue relentlessly pursue gratitude and living intentionally. And you mentioned how intentional you were in the decision to not be there for your mom's last moments. And I'm curious, how, how, how were those ideas of pursuing gratitude, living intentionally, like what role did they play in your grief? I mean, in the beginning, and I don't think I realized until later, but in the beginning, it was me surviving, right? It was me, it was me maneuvering through grief and not knowing how dark it was going to get because it was already dark. Right. And so I'm, I'm maneuvering through grief and it's just getting darker and darker and darker. And at one point I remember we were like year one after my mom died. And I was like, it's so, I I am so dark inside. Like this can't be how I'm supposed to live. And so it was me surviving. It was, I remember the person I was before and I want to at least get towards being that kind of person or, or, or if I have to, build a new person, right? And so that's where me intentionally, you know, doing things, which is I intentionally build a, I build a new tie. You know, I'm, I'm gonna be this wellness person. I'm gonna talk relentlessly about grief. I'm going to talk about choosing happiness and gratitude and joy repeatedly because I know I did it and it can work for you. And so in that process, it was just survival, period. And that's so much a part of grief, right? Is figuring out how am I going to survive this in this moment, in this day, in this month, in this year. And for other folks maybe who are listening, who are in that really dark and early intense time of grief to sometimes hear like, choose gratitude, choose joy. You're like, what? Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So you're like, I don't don't know how, or how do I do it? Or it seems like, but what do I do with this grief? And I'm curious for you, like if you could give an example of a way that you like, what does it look like? You wake up in the morning, you're like, okay, I'm going to choose some joy today. And I'm going to recognize and honor the grief that's still with me. Like, how do you hold both of those realities? So a part of it for me was, and still is, because I think what we get, what we, what we get from grieving or the practice of, you know, doing it in a healthy way, we think that there's these one, two, three steps I've arrived. And that's just not what grief is. For me, like, I I don't know if someone else has been able to do it, but I haven't. And so for me, it's a constant survival. It's a constant reminding myself that I must choose joy and gratitude. Like, you know, I have to choose these things. And so knowing that joy and sorrow legitimately run parallel in my life and sometimes intersect and exist at the same time and being okay with that, like being okay, age old saying, being okay with not being okay. And I have had those days, I will continue to have those days, but on the flip side, I will give myself grace, whether it's take a moment, meditate, regroup, give myself an hour or a whole damn day or a whole damn week, and I'm gonna start over and I'm gonna choose it again. And so a lot of times people go into the whole idea of choosing you know, gratitude, they choose it or try to choose, choose it one time and it doesn't work. And they're like, well, that didn't work. I can't do that no more. <laughs> That's not how this works. Cause it, cause you might step into it and maybe you can't find your routine 
or maybe you're not being vulnerable enough in your gratitude journal or your, you know, your walk with gratitude, you know, and it's like, you might have to unpack a little bit more for it to make sense for you. So I encourage people not to go into it the first time thinking, it's just going to be choosing joy. No, you got to do it repeatedly and you're going to fall sometimes and you're going to trip over things and you're going to bump your head, but you got to get back up and do it again. I literally, last week I had a bad day. It's a bad day. Scrap it. The whole day's bad. Let's do it again tomorrow. And literally I was able to get up in the morning, write down some intentions, release some thoughts and the day's better. If I'm smart, if I'm good, I can do that in the morning, you know, wake up, write my intentions. I'm not a morning person, so I'm not as good about it. <laughs> but, you know, once you get those routines in place, it will become easier for you to choose the joy and, and, and create those moments, you know. Yeah, I love the idea of it being, you know, a practice, not a final exam. Like, oh, I got that answer wrong. I'm not going to take that class ever again. It's like, wake up, try again. That's exact. That's a, a, the best analogy ever. I'm going to steal that. But that is exactly how it works. Whenever someone tells me I've tried to choose joy, it's not working. And I know exactly what they've done. They've tried to do something and they're still stuck in that. Woe is me. I can't move past this. And you literally have to get it in your head. I'm going to do these things reluctantly over and over and over again until my brain, until my body remembers that this feels good, that this is joy. But in the beginning, especially I would say in your first year, first year of grief, you're automatically blocking the air because you're mad. You're mad the person is gone, you're confused, you may even be in denial, all of those stages of grief, you're battling that. And then on top of that, you're gonna try to choose some joy. <laughs> Your brain is like, I, I'm dealing with these seven things over here. I don't know what to do with that joy. I'm, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Speaking of things that don't often go along with joy, uh, talk about guilt. What was, how did you make sense of guilt? Because guilt means a lot of things to a lot of people, right? I was raised in a family that had a very strong Catholic history. So I think it's just in my bloodstream. Mm. But so, but I wonder for you, like, what did you feel guilty about and how did you kind of wrestle with that emotion of guilt? So initially, obviously, I felt guilty about not being there to basically watch her die, which is basically what that is, um, and not kind of holding her hand, you know, as she went to the next level. And then it got to me being guilty about conversations. I remember we had like one argument about like how to cook the big ziti and we're fussing and yelling. And really in hindsight, we're, we're fussing and yelling because this, this is the last time we get to do this together. And so when I replay things in my head about why I'm guilty, I really go back to my intention, which is never ill. And so it kind of erases the guilt for me, most of it, but again, I'm still human. So I still feel it, but I have to go back to, sometimes my feelings aren't the fact. And so the fact is I may feel guilty, but I'm not guilty. Yeah, it makes me think how often we feel guilty for things that were not in our control, whether because it's a, an event that's truly outside of our control or we didn't have all the information in the moment that we have now, looking back retrospectively. And that I love that idea of going back to the intention, like, 
I didn't intend to harm or hurt my person. It just, I didn't have all the information I needed, or I didn't know that was going to be the last chance I had to talk to them in person or, or whatever it is that we're carrying with us. All of that. And I definitely, I go back to like giving myself grace. What I knew grieving year one versus year six is completely different. Like I would write a whole new book and working on a whole new book because my thoughts on grief are different. How I have received, you know, things are just different. My Just everything is different. And so I think when we go into grieving once, if we took in consideration, one, the intention, and also that if you allow yourself, you will blossom and grow into this person who can live and grieve in a healthy way. I think we wouldn't be as so, you know, up against the wall with it. Can you give us a little sneak preview of what you'll be writing about that's different knowing now in year six that you never could have imagined in year one after your mom died? It's what I talk about now, choosing gratitude over grief. Um, and it'll probably be called gratitude over grief and just expanding on the idea, also giving other tips besides journaling and just how how I have arrived in year six to be, people are always surprised at how healthy I am in grief. Like they're like, are you sure you cared about your mama? Cause you sure ain't crying. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, I loved her dearly, but that doesn't mean that with every kind, con- of course, some things I get a little choked up about, but I think the more I, the more I dug into what it felt like, the more I was able to articulate myself, the more I was able to be more vulnerable. And so the next book, the next chapter of my life is now all about just owning this wellness space and, and, and really owning this idea that you can choose gratitude over grief. The other aspect in your story that is also familiar to so many people who have experienced a death is that the other relationships in their family can sometimes splinter or fracture or grow distant and I know you talk about the, the, you know, the relationship with your father really growing extremely distant after your mom died. And can you talk a little bit about that and what that was like for you? I really wish people could see my face right now because <laughs> I knew the question was coming. <laughs> um, you know, it's really crazy because, I again, I have been unpacking what my father and I's relationship really was. And I think I did myself a disservice as an adult and as a kid in thinking that it was stronger than what it was. And I think because my mom was here to always put a Band-Aid on it or smooth things out, it really camouflaged how bad it really was. And if I'm honest with myself, it was already bad before she died. It's just that she was the matriarch of our family. She was the person who kind of kept it together. Now, today, it's even worse than what it was six years ago when I wrote the book. My new theme, I had just shared it on self-care in real life Instagram page, is that forgiveness is not reconnection. And I can forgive my dad for all the things that happened. It doesn't mean that I'm rekindling the relationship. It doesn't mean it's going to be the same way. 
And so now I'm in the second stage of my forgiveness is kind of figuring out how to maneuver what is existing, which is damaged. And unless you have a person who's able to heal with you, it's still going to be one part that's damaged. And so me in my healing stage, fighting against someone who doesn't want to heal, it's not going to work. Like I, I, I don't, it's just not going to work. And so now I'm trying to figure out what that looks like for me in my walk, because again, self first, not selfish, but self first. And so in, with that theme, I'm trying to figure out how that looks. So I can't even really answer the question because it's, <laughs> I'm like, did I answer the question? I don't know, girl. It, <laughs> it's complicated. I am working, it's funny because I, I literally emailed a, a friend who has a practice in DC and I was like, I'm pretty sure I need to, to, to start therapy again because I cannot uh, get past certain things, right? I cannot accept certain things in order for it not to turn into resentment and be bitter i have to figure out some some additional tools that are above my wheelhouse <laughs> to be able to manage this i mean my dad is 68 and he reminds me all the time again he's not going to be here forever and with that he's going to do whatever the hell he wants to do until his time is up and so since i don't agree with how he lives i have to figure out how to live with that as you were talking, it it makes me think a lot of times when this happens, I think it's such a common thing, right? That the person who died was the person holding the other relationships together. And then when they're no longer here to buffer, like that spotlight goes on to where is maybe the breakdown or where's the dysfunction. And I was really appreciating as you were talking, the idea that forgiveness is again for the self, not for the other. And that it's important for you, it sounds like, to be working on like the forgiveness or the getting some more tools around that because it's you want to stay clean with yourself for the relationship um, and that it may not actually shift anything with the interaction with your dad. And it's, it's not. And so for me, forgiveness is closure for me so that when he does die, I am not again, bitter or resentful or mad or wondering what if, I can literally go on and say, you know what, I forgive him. It is what it is. He's made his choice. It was not the choice I wanted. And I also have to be okay with people not choosing what I want them to choose, even if I think it's in the best interest of that person. And so he reminded me, this is his life. Plain and simple. The hardest thing ever. If you write a book about that, I'm going to sign up to be the first reader. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the third book because I feel like I won't, I'll be well into my 50s and 60s processing all of this. <laughs> so we mentioned earlier, like the relevant context. And, you know, we're talking in June of 2020 that COVID-19 pandemic is still raging. There's the Black Lives Matter moving movement getting so much more press and recognition and momentum. And I'm wondering like the combination of those things, like what's that bringing up for you and your grief? I'm tired. <laughs> I, I'm not even gonna lie. I am exhausted because being black has been my identity before anything else. 
before I'm a woman, I am black. So again, like we pointed out earlier, this is not new for us, for me. I've been talking or, or dealing with rather, you know, how people treat me as a black woman. I am also not short or skinny. I'm loud. I'm audacious. And so I, I, I've lost, you know, jobs or things because of how I appear either on paper or in person. You know, I, I, I've been the person who showed up you know, and you're like, she, she is definitely too black for this. And so what does that do to your soul? It is tiresome. I am tired. And so in the beginning, when the Black Lives Matter thing, not in the beginning, because it's been an ongoing thing, but lately I'll say when the George Floyd thing happened and then we became extra vocal and then white women joined the conversation, I was relieved that I didn't have to keep saying this. I was relieved that someone else, especially, particularly, who didn't like look like me, wanted to join the conversation. And I could pass the mic and just sit back for a minute. And I, I am gladly, here's these resources, here's these graphics, here's these screenshots. This is what you tell your racist friends. I'm tired. I have nothing else to give. I am exhausted. Being black has exhaust. Being, I won't say because I love being black. I'll, I'll back up. Being black in America in a white world is exhausting. It makes me think about the intersection there too of grief and how often, you know, we'll say grief is not the problem. Grief is not the challenge. I mean, it is. There's a challenge. Your person is not here, and that is heartbreaking and painful. That's unfiltered. And then there's the reaction we encounter. There's the responsibilities we have in the world. There's the expectations that other people have of on us and how that adds to the additional layers of suffering, of being a person who's grieving in our society. And, and so I was just thinking about the parallels there and then thinking about you carrying both of those things, being a black woman in America and being a grieving black woman in America. You answered the question for me. <laughs> it's, it is a lot. It is like, it's funny because when I questioned my name, it also got me to kind of think about my identity in a way that I had never thought about it. And so as, again, as the world becomes more woke, as we like to say, I am very aware of the things I hold, which is my grief, my blackness, my womanhood, my mothering, you know, and there's so many hats so many just things that make me me that are also fighting against each other that it it is exhausting and so i i hope that at one point or at some point rather i feel like my mom said around 50 or 60 it begins to make sense that's what they say so i'm hoping that it's true <laughs> but i'm hoping that i i can come to a place in my identity where it makes sense, it feels comfortable, one's not fighting with the other, because I promise you my blackness always fights with my, with my womanhood. And this idea of being a feminist and, and this idea of, of wanting my race to be seen, because if we're really clear on things as a feminist, race is not seen. And so I hope that I can get to a point in, in acknowledging who I am and accepting my identity that they can mesh and I can be a cohesive as possible person. And also the hope that other people are working on that too, so that you're not the only one having to do it alone. I got to tell you, I don't know. If I'm 
we're going to give that one to the Lord. <laughs> well, I think about the, the work of this podcast, which is, you know, specifically around the grief of having had someone die and the hope that the more people who are educating themselves around their own grief, so having a better understanding and the recognition that grief is so unique for everyone, hopefully is building a little bit stronger network, foundation, support system for people so they aren't having to go out and, and educate other people about their grief or justify what they're needing or what they're doing or what they're exploring uh, in that experience too. Yeah, I definitely think, I while I think race and grief have lots of things that intersect, I think that we are a little bit more progressive in talking about grief now in 2020. If you had asked me 10 years ago, we were not having these types of dialogues. And so I'm definitely proud to be a part of the community that is still pushing forward and having these conversations and openly having these conversations. And then you have the side conversations, we're building communities. So I think when we think about grief, it, it's only going to get better because we have these type of podcasts that give people the education, not only education, but the permission, right? to choose joy. I think a lot of times we don't think it's okay to be joyful and grieve. We really do think that, oh, my mom died. I'm supposed to be sad. I should be broken up about this. I should be crying all the time because my mom died. And so a lot of times I think podcasts like these, the podcasts I have, just communities allow people that give them the permission that it's okay to be joyful, even though that they're not here with you. Yeah, learning to live in both of those worlds. It's, yeah, it seems like the whole work of grief right there. It is. <laughs> so so speaking of, of grief and work and things that we learn and things that we're exploring, you know, the title of your book, Things I Wish I Knew Before My Mom Died, in this moment, what's the number one thing you wish, you still wish you knew? I really wish I would have, not really knew, but wish I would have done. I wish I would have documented things more. I did a lot of writing down, like I'm a journaler, if that's a word, I journal a lot. <laughs> so I wrote down lots of things, feelings, things that happened, conversations, but I wish I would have recorded them. Like I wish I would have thought to open up my phone, open up the voice memo and record her voice of all the things I miss. Like, I'm really okay with her not being here, right? Like, I, again, I understand that people died. We don't own them. But her voice sometimes escapes me. I really wish I had something. And, and for a while there, her number was available. So I would call the voicemail and just kind of listen to her voice in the voicemail. But of all the things I wish I would have done, it would have been to record her more, you know, whether it be voice or video. So I could have later, I think one of the biggest tips I give to people is make sure you capture those moments and those times, because those are the things that are going to keep you above the water as you're in those, you know, muddy areas of, of grief. So listeners out there, I'm imagining many of you in this time of COVID-19 are doing Zoom chats with your family or Google meetups or whatever platform you're using. Hit the record button, possibly record one of those chats. So then you'll have a video and an audio legacy and memory of this, of your people. Very good tip because we are Zooming every day at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it has become our new way of life, but I, 
it's such a great memory to have. I would suggest if you can mentally, if you have the capacity or even designate someone else who may have the capacity to do it, is literally start to record things, start to get them to write down the recipes, get them to you know write down memories, you know, hand a, a journal to them to write down letters to you or whatever, because again, you're gonna need those for later, for the times where you can't stop crying, you know, where you're on the bathroom floor sobbing and that voice is gonna bring you back up. That video is gonna bring you back up to be able to choose gratitude. Well, Ty, I am so grateful for your time today, for your suggestions for our listeners and for, you know, the willingness to share your voice with all of us. Thank you so much for having me. I tell people all the time, I am literally just a vessel. Um, And for me, being vulnerable and sharing is a part of my own therapy. It's free therapy. I don't have to pay nobody to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So technically, y'all are helping me. (laughs) And I'm guessing our listeners um, are going to want to check out your book and your blog and your podcast. So can you give us just a quick, um, I'll put everything in the show notes, but just let us know quickly, like, where's the best place for people to find your work? Yes. So the book, the easiest place, it is in all brick and mortars, but the easiest place with COVID going on is on Amazon. I think it's actually on sale. Again, it's called Things I Wish I Knew Before My Mom Died. If you want to follow me and my funny laugh and my cute hair styles and stuff, you can follow me on Instagram. It's just at Ty Alexander. Our wellness community is self-care IRL, which stands for in real life. Um, and that's selfcareinreallife.com, uh, also on Twitter, wherever you want to um, do social, we are there. So, Well, listeners, definitely go check out the podcast. I to- I've enjoyed all the episodes I've listened to, and, and the book is just fantastic. So definitely listen or read or purchase or however you're going to um, obtain it. Please go forward and do, do that. Do it. Do it all. Click everything. <laughs> Click follow, listen. <laughs> just do it all because you like me. <laughs> Well, Ty, thank you again for being part of the show today. I thank you so much for allowing me to have a free therapy session. (laughs) And listeners out there, thank you for for tuning in and being part of our community. If you want to reach out to me and tell me anything about the show or what it means to you or who you want me to be having on as a guest, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. If you're new to our show and want to find our past episodes, you can go to d-o-u-g-y dot o-r-g forward slash grief out loud. Thanks again for listening and we hope you'll join us again next time.